Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are watching this. I am Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism and host of Hoover's Area 45 podcast and our recently launched Goodfellows broadcast that airs on Wednesdays. Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University is one of the nation's leading research centers. Throughout our 100-year history, our work has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote individual, political, and economic freedom in the United States and around the world. The work of finding such solutions has never been more important than it is right now, given the challenges brought on by a global pandemic. These briefings provide an opportunity for you, the public, to hear directly from our scholars as they engage in an informed discussion on COVID-19 and where we go from here. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions a little later in the conversation. I encourage you to submit yours. It's very simple. You just go to the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen and fire away. We'll take your question. Today's briefing is from Doug Rivers and Dave Brady on COVID-19 and politics. Doug Rivers is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of political science at Stanford University. He is also the chief scientist at YouGov PLC, a global polling firm. Dave Brady is the Hoover Institution's Davies Family Senior Fellow and likewise a Stanford University political scientist. He has published seven books and more than 100 papers on elections, politics, and public policy. Doug and Dave, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bill. Doug, I want to start with you as you are the pollster um, and resident pollster at Hoover. I want to ask you a question about your industry, your trade. Pollsters were taken to the woodshed after the 2016 election, the shock of Hillary Clinton leading in the opinion polls going into the election, and Donald Trump being the victor afterwards. I would point out, by the way, I went back and I looked at your last Economist YouGov poll. You had the race at 46 Hillary, 43 Trump. The final numbers, I believe, were 48.1 for Hillary, 46.1 for Trump. I think as a pollster, you take it as a victory when a three-point race ends up as a two-point race. But there was this backlash against pollsters and a conversation about how polling might be a little different in 2020. Can you explain how polling is different in this election? Yeah, the lessons of uh, 2016 were that you needed to pay more attention to getting the right set of likely voters in your sample. Uh, and in particular, uh, how in the uh, Midwestern battleground states, we missed the big swing towards Trump among white working class voters. Um, the polling in 2018 was pretty good. And while we're still sheltering in place for uh, 2020, um, so far, uh, I think most of the polls are in agreement and the methodologies are better than they were four years ago. Mm -hmm. Dave? Well, I, I think that's right. The mistake was they didn't uh, didn't uh, sample enough in Pennsylvania, Michigan. It looked like those states would stay blue. They didn't stay blue. And I believe this time, uh, Doug and his group, I know, does it for CBS, and they're going to sample many, many more people in those states. Right. So Pennsylvania was not a battleground state in 2016, correct? It was seen as pretty reliably blue, but surprise, Trump carried it. Uh, Dave, you we and I actually had it even for... Yeah most of the 2016 election. Right, Dave and I were talking a few days ago about battlegrounds and the definition of Dave, I think you expanded it to something like 15 to 17 states. That surprised me. I thought the definition was maybe eight to 10 to 12. Uh, why that large number, 15 to 17? Well, it probably is. I, I just took a, a number where I said uh, five 
five point in any state where a five point swing would change the results. So if a person won by fifty four nine, that was it. Might be reasonably some, but my view is why in an election that we think is going to be close again, why have a narrow definition? Uh, Doug Doug has uh, pointed out to me that that puts in some states that probably are going to stay red. I think that's right. So my having 15 to 17 is a little bit on the cautious side. It's probably more like 12 or 13. But my view in this case is why not err on the side of safety for the prediction's sake. Mm -hmm. And Doug, do you put Texas in the mix or not? <clears throat> uh, I don't. Uh, it's getting closer, uh, but it's midway in its transition from being a safe Republican state to um, a uh, a purple state, but it's not, it's not there yet. Democrats are not winning statewide elections in Texas at the moment. Right. I think that's probably right, but I would have Texas in the group because it, it, uh, Trump did not win in 2016 by a margin greater than five. Right. Now, Dave, you just wrote a column for Real Clear Politics in which you're talking about the public's reaction to COVID, how it's changing public opinions, the public's confidence, and so forth. Can you give us some of the data points from that article? Well, so the argument is uh, pretty, pretty clearly presidents ultimately are held responsible for the economy and so on. So what, what the response to COVID is and how voters respond to that will have an effect. And there was over the period of March, particularly starting in mid-March, there was a bump for Trump. He went up about four to five points. Right. And the question was, what was that? And uh, our argument is that it was a rally around the flag effect, much like uh, the Bay of Pigs, much like 9-11 or the Iran hostage crisis. And what happens in those situations is members of the president's party, they stay uh, with the president. But uh, the members of the other party come around and then independents come around. And what determines how long it lasts is, is there elite opinion reaction against it? And in the case of President Trump, that reaction was almost immediate as news media, Democrats took them on. And so the result is, uh, of the article is, I look at uh, what happened between uh, March 1st and March 31st. And in that case, Republicans were steady on both support for the president on the COVID and support for the president overall. His approval rating, they were well into the 90s. Democrats uh, went up seven points uh, beginning of March and end. Uh, and pure independents uh, were up about four or five points. But what happened by April, by April, the last poll, April 14th, is that Republicans are still uh, consistently uh, with him, although less on the COVID now, 84% instead of 90s. But Democrats have dropped back down eight points and independents have dropped 18 points. So the Trump bump, the rally around the flag effect looks like it looks like it's gone. The COVID response uh, among moderate Democrats is uh, still reasonably high but he's lost among the very liberal and liberal. The one thing on the downside for him is that Republicans on responses to COVID are only at 84 now. And the reason for that is because uh, uh, the moderate, uh, moderate Republicans, which are about 22% of the party, they're only giving him about 73% support. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, um, 
a few things here. Trump got a rally around the flag bump on the order of three to five points. Right. Um, that uh, is something you expect in an event that uh, attracts everyone's attention. Um, it wasn't nearly as big as uh, what Democratic governors have gotten, some of whom have gotten 20 to 30 point bounces. Right. Um, and it appears that it's largely dissipated. In our surveys, we're still showing Trump about two points higher than he was uh, uh, two months ago. Um, the second is the way this has played out has been a sequence of events where initially Trump was downplaying it, uh, being optimistic, um, and that was received well by Republicans, badly by Democrats. Then in mid-March, uh, as the number of deaths and cases were mounting, uh, Trump declared a national emergency. And that's when the real bump was seen. Uh, Democrats viewed him as um, uh, taking charge and he got you know, a five point bump in Trump approval among Democrats is a big bump. Um, he was already nearly as high as he could have been among Republicans. Right. and his handling of COVID uh, improved uh, over that period. Right. We're now seeing uh, a reversion a bit of, there's a big difference between Democrats and Republicans in beliefs about, is the economy ready to be reopened? 12% of Republicans think uh, we could uh, get rid of the restrictions today uh, and be okay. Um, a majority of Republicans think that uh, in, Sometime in the next month is the right time to reopen the economy. Uh, Democrats believe, majority believe more than a month, and quite a few believe that it's going to be several months. Um, right. So, Doug, we're in this position now where you have governors now forming regional PACs in the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California, Northeastern governors, New York up to Massachusetts, bonding together, and they're making a group decision as to when to move forward, when to reopen. You look, look at your polling data, is there any sweet spot that you can find where you can find a happy compromise, if you will, between Republicans and, and Democrats on this? Um, so um, there's a big difference between Democrats and Republicans, how they view the seriousness of this, but there's also a big difference in the location of Democrats and Republicans, that right. um, most of the severe outbreaks uh, initially were in blue states, New York, Washington, California. Right. Um, and uh, in those states, the partisan divide was a lot less in terms of what people did, in terms of staying at home, uh, washing their hands. Uh, that's largely a difference between places where um, the belief is the coronavirus is a big deal and places where it's not viewed as such a big deal. Okay, so the regions are gonna, the regions are gonna do what the regions are gonna do. Right. There, Governors <laughs> across the country are getting strong bipartisan support. Right. Um, yeah, it is interesting, and that, that's consistent with the notion of, so you look at Cuomo, Cuomo in New York is not getting any, he's not getting any Republican or any media thing saying you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, as is uh, Trump, and the result of that is Cuomo's up, uh, his, his rating among Republicans is, uh, has been about a 20-point jump, and his rating among independents has been about a 15-point jump, so he's staying stable, 
and Trump is coming back down because of that elite problem. Okay. Uh, we haven't mentioned the name Joe Biden yet. Um, let's talk about uh, the Democratic nominee in waiting. Uh, he is uh, at home in Wilmington, Delaware. He cannot travel the country and do events and raise money. It's uh, an election unlike any that we've known and that he uh, cannot go through the regular channels. He cannot close things out in May and June, keep us in suspense for his vice presidential candidate. He may not have a convention in August, may not be a convention for either party, if you will. But what, did, what do we see about Joe Biden and his numbers right now? Because he, he it, I find this an interesting question because he, for a fellow who's been in Washington for almost 50 years, he doesn't have a role in this. Yeah, the, he doesn't occupy a position where there's anything natural for him to do. And and the Trump press conferences are getting enormous amount of attention, and that's what people are paying attention to. Um, his numbers, however, uh, in trial heats are been stable. That is, he's winning typically by five to six points when paired against Trump uh, in a trial heat. His ratings on coronavirus, though, are meh. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, when you look, look at the election that he's running He's running uh, better than Hillary was running. Uh, this is all pretty early, but the six points is better than she was toward the end. If he can keep that up, that's a very good sign. It's still the case that when you divide it up into the competitive states or battleground states, that in those states, the Biden, the gap, the Biden gap is no longer six points. It's close. And so, again, it's going to come down to a certain uh, smaller number of states. Now, I keep those states at a larger number than Doug does, uh, but uh, or I don't know how many he's going to have in the ultimate survey, but that's where it's going to be decided. And I think the election is going to be close. The Trump base has not gone. Mm -hmm. Doug? Yeah, I, this is not going to absent something happening between now and the election, which obviously is a big if. Uh, this will be a close election. Um, the Electoral College math uh, is a little better now for uh, Trump than it was in uh, 2016, where he lost by uh, over 2 million votes and um, still won the Electoral College by a decent margin. Um, why, is it, why is it better, Doug? Uh, so what's happened is Democrats have picked up among suburban uh, voters, uh, who uh, tend to be in the urban states that were blue to begin with. Um, there has not been a big state that, you know, so gains in New York and California increase the Democratic vote, but don't win any additional Electoral College votes. And while Texas is getting closer and Georgia, um, uh, Florida actually hasn't moved any uh, over the last four years. Um, so the, the result there is there hasn't been a big state that would change the Electoral College map that has switched. Uh, the closest, I would say, is Arizona for a decent-sized state where the Democrats could have a pickup. Um, so the Democrats in 2020 uh, largely need to regain states that were considered to be um, pretty solid blue states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Um, Okay, we're going to do a Q&A in just a moment. I have one more question, but just a reminder, if you do have a question to ask, go to the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen and we'll try to get to it. Uh, as we talk about the economy restarting, gentlemen, what about the political process restarting? At some point, these two candidates have to come out of their respective confinement. Trump can't do MAGA rallies. Biden can't do public rallies. 
But at some point, there's this thing called campaigning for the office. And I hard to see in 2020 being a virtual election in that regard, the two gentlemen that are coming up public. What is your sense that these two are going to break out? Well, go ahead. No, I know you're not a health expert or a scientist, but at some <laughs> yeah, point, but, we have but to there is politics. The campaign, the in-person part of the campaign is, is basically a uh, charade that's uh, the candidates march around the country with na the National Press Corps and right. um, they're covered on TV and uh, the crowd is essentially, uh, you know, the laugh track. Um, so uh, I think, you know, I don't know how it'll work out, but there's no reason you can't run a national campaign on television without the audiences in front of you. It may just be boring TV and people don't want to watch. Um, but, you know, insofar as no MAGA rallies for Trump, he does two hours every day uh, and is getting many more people than uh, he would get uh, actually doing the rallies physically. That, that, by the way, is how campaigns used to be run. Campaigns used to be run, for example, in 1896. No, Doug, I was not alive and present then. But in 1896, the entire McKinley campaign was run from his front porch. I think we're going to see a move back toward that. It's going to be more TV with a few uh, with a few events where people are safely uh, spaced and so on and so forth. But I, I also don't see any reason why the campaign can't uh, heat up then. TV, et cetera, is going to take care of that. Yeah. I'm less sure about what's happening on the um, physical distancing. Um, but it seems to me if we are in that world where you can't run a convention, where you can't run rallies, uh, you can still run an election. All right, let's go to the Q&A, gentlemen. Um, Elizabeth and Raga uh, asked variations of the same question, so I'm gonna read Elizabeth's to you. And she asked, quote, are there differences in opinion about when to reopen based on where people live rather than blue or red states? In other words, in a state like California that is in better shape to do, do more people believe it is time to go back to work rather than in New York where the situation remains a greater concern? Um. So I don't have uh, the numbers broken down by California and New York, but we did break them down by places where there were shelter-in-place orders and not, and typically people supported the decisions that were being made. So in New York, in California, and most of the uh, blue states, there's widespread support across the uh, ideological and partisan uh, spectrum for uh, shelter in place and not a great desire to uh, immediately leave. And um, so there is a big geographic dis difference that, um, as I said, is I think is a large component is really geographic and not partisan. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's right. I would, uh, only thing I would add to that is in the, uh, the GRV is more people in urban areas can work from home. So that, that has, I think, a bit less of, of an effect. Um, and I, the second thing I want to say is that over time, that's going to change as the, uh, as the longer you shut down, the harder it's going to be for the economy to get back uh, up and going. And so that, that's going to start coming up in public opinion, even in blue states. So that's something we're going to have to watch, uh, watch very carefully. Yeah. So one of the interesting metrics is whether people think there's been an overreaction or underreaction by most people, not the government, but by average Americans. 
And so right now, uh, majority of Republicans uh, believe that there's been a overreaction, a very small number think there's an underreaction and it's flipped among Democrats. Um, so if you try to open up today in New York, or I think even in California, where it's uh, much better controlled, um, you would find that uh, a large fraction of the population isn't that eager to, um, to go back to the way it was. Uh, but there are other parts of the country where it's absolutely the reverse, where um, people's belief is there haven't been a lot of cases here, a lot of deaths, and they don't see um, them becoming like New York. And so the political calculus is really going to be based on what happens. Um, if, uh, you know, if you take the, uh, the relatively rural states in the middle of the country, and if they don't have big outbreaks, um, I think people are going to interpret that as it was an overreaction the, um, and that Trump pushing for a quick reopening will be very popular and could lead to a bump in his uh, approval ratings. On the other hand, if we do get a quick reopening and uh, there are outbreaks in these places, the way there is a pretty severe outbreak in South Dakota at the moment, uh, that is not a good position for a governor to be in of uh, taking responsibility for uh, people getting sick and some dying. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important point because those uh, sort of two uh, polar positions where Trump reopens, aren't that many deaths, the economy gets back going, that's really good for him. On the other side, you open it up and it go, that's bad. And I think that political calculation and people are going to be watching how public opinion is moving on exactly that dimension. There is no safe place for either side in this. this point. Agreed. I agree. Yeah. We have a question from Lewis. He writes, quote, uh, so far Democratic governors favor prolonging the economic lockdown and Republican ones are in favor of restarting their economies, albeit at a manageable pace. Is this the case for individual voters also? And I think, Dave, this gets back to your column about Republicans and Democrats just having very different attitudes on coronavirus. Yeah, I, that's correct. And I, and I think I agree with Doug. It, it mainly is a question of where the corona in Montana, Idaho, Iowa, places like that, there are not very many outbreaks. But South Dakota turns out to be a problem, particularly because of the pork production uh, facilities there. So it is a calculation that it, the question is right at this point, it is red and blue state. But the question is, I agree totally with Doug, there's no safe space for either party on this. It's, these are gonna be, have to be very careful calculations with lots at stake moving one way or the other. The economy suffers or you get more deaths. Not an easy trade-off. And there has, <clears throat> there has been movement in the last few weeks on this among Republicans to a more uh, pro-open-up-the-economy position. Um, I think Republicans have largely followed the lead of the president. So when he said there wasn't anything to worry about, Republicans overwhelmingly said there isn't anything to worry about. Uh, in mid-March, when things... Um, you know, the cases exploded and the number of deaths went from, you know, zero to uh, 30,000 now. Uh, Republicans started to look a lot like Democrats, but they're starting to drift back and you're seeing a divide that we didn't have a few weeks ago. Right. So Linda writes... I, I believe that divide will continue to grow. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't want to overstate it. There was a divide 
even in the middle of March between Democrats and Republicans, but it was largely a geographic divide. Yeah. And now we're starting to see a what appears to be more a uh, ideological or follow the leader. Right. So Linda writes, is there anything that you think Biden should be doing vis-a-vis -vis the COVID virus? Uh, let me kind of flesh that out for you. You have polling data. Is, is COVID changing the election, gentlemen, in terms of maybe Biden having to be more Bill Clinton, if you will? I feel your pain, uh, uh, as Obama would have said, a consoler in chief. Well, you would think the uh, that Trump would view as his main task at this point is to occupy that position of the president that is reassuring and and understands people. Um, so the normal thing pollsters follow in this is a question on uh, does X care about people like you? Um, and uh, the answer there is, I think, pretty interesting that on Trump, uh, Republicans, you know, 85 percent of Republicans say yes, Trump does care about people like me. And among Democrats, it's like 5% uh, say that about Trump. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not the be nonpartisan in the middle of a uh, national unifying event. Uh, in the case of Biden, he's just a cipher at the moment that uh, uh, people are not paying attention to him. And uh, so he's not moving the needle one way or the other on this. I, and I think uh, I was uh, speaking with Bruce Kane, uh, uh, Singer's Political Science, and he, he gave a good example uh, where people are saying, what should Biden be doing? He, he gave an interesting example of uh, Jerry Brown when he came back after going in India with the Maharaja for the first time for uh, governor, which he won. He won the nomination and he, there was a long time period people were saying, why aren't you campaigning? Why aren't you campaigning? And, and uh, his view was, you know, it's not really, people aren't paying attention yet, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not clear to me absolutely about what Biden should be. He, does, he doesn't have a position. He's, he's uh, the tentative nominee of the Democratic Party, not a governor. So I think he can let, uh, he can do what he's doing, CNN, little, little TV appearances at town halls. And then he can let the other people in the party uh, speak for him. And as you, Bill, pointed out before, one thing he's doing is he's above the race. Not he personally is not blaming Trump for the thing, and uh, and the other people in the Democratic Party can. And he's above the fray. So I don't I don't I don't see him as handling this badly at this point. Right. We're getting a lot of questions uh, from the audience on ballots and voting. Um, question comes from. Um, uh, comes, let's see, I'm sorry, I lost it here. Uh, comes from Scott. How do you project the need for write-in balloting as opposed to poll voting to have an effect on voting turnout, if any? In other words, if if we're still doing social distancing and people are afraid to come out and vote in person, we saw this in Wisconsin last week. Uh, it was just a, a total mess. Uh, are we going to see more states go into write-in ballots? Are we going to see more online voting, if you will? Do you gentlemen think that coronavirus is going to start us into a larger reform when it comes to voting? That's, that's going to be problematic because uh, Republicans, in some sense, Republicans are already opposed to it and Democrats are for it. Right. I might add there's a great new paper by a colleague of ours, Andy Hall, who looked at all of the elections in the U.S. given new technology 
and uh, finds out that there's no evidence that uh, absentee ballots affect the results in a well, particularly partisan way. But I think this it is going to be a big issue, uh, particularly how long the coronavirus lasts, whether it comes back, things we don't know. But uh, it strikes me there's ways you can do this. You could have uh, extend the period. Uh, Texas has voting early. They have trucks with machines pulled into there. So I, it's going to be a battle. But my view is uh, it should uh, we, we should figure out ways to make sure that people who want to vote can vote. One final point on that is yesterday, Korea voted for the National Assembly and 66 uh, percent or 66 percent turnout which actually was the highest turnout they've had in the National Assembly elections since the 90s. Right. But how so, did they do it, Dave? Did they vote on, did they do right? Did they do vote on ballots? Did they vote? They, had, they, uh, they, they vote in lines and uh, they give them a couple of days to do it. So there, there are ways to do it and make sure that everybody who wants to vote and is, a lot, and is eligible to vote can. Interesting. Doug? Yeah, so, uh, Making voting easier and vote by mail is extremely popular. Um, it's favored by uh, over 60% of the public. Um, it's about even among Republican voters. Uh, it's opposed by uh, Republican legislators in most places. Right. The political science evidence, as Dave said, is largely that there's a small positive effect on turnout. Uh, relatively little or no effect on the partisan split in vote. In fact, if you look at early voting, there are two types of early voting. Uh, there's absentee by mail and there's early in person. Uh, most places, absentee by mail runs a bit more on the Republican side. Um, so I think what we're really talking about is moving early voting uh, to mail uh, voting or relaxing uh, or introducing no excuse absentee, uh, which in some places, uh, you know, it, it tends to be strict in southern states, but New York is one that had a, uh, did not allow no excuse absentee and had very low absentee voting. Uh, David writes, how much does Biden's VP selection impact the key swing stakes? In other words, gentlemen, is there an LBJ sitting out there? Is there a Lyndon Johnson who in 1960 gave Kennedy Texas? Can you fellows think of any individual out there? Well, who I want to quote a good friend of mine, Doug Rivers. It doesn't make much difference. <laughs> and then turn it over to Doug. Yeah, the... the Basically, by choosing a vice presidential candidate, you can hurt yourself if you pick somebody who gets a lot of negative attention. Right. Um, but it's hard to identify a case where uh, it really made a difference. The LBJ case suggests that uh, in a particular state, it might help you. So that seems to be a positive for Gretchen Whitmer. Um, but uh, overall, it's one of those things that will be intensively covered by the press for a couple weeks in August, and I think will be forgotten by election day. As, as long as it's not a mistake. Yeah. Right. So let's flesh this out a little bit. It seems to me Biden has at least three paths to go down in terms of a vice presidential pick. He can play purely to the base, which would suggest maybe Stacey Abrams from Georgia. He could play geography, which is the governor of Michigan, maybe Amy Klobuchar of Salem, Minnesota, 
or he could be his own man and he could do what Bill Clinton did in 1992, which was surprise people by go with sort of a copy of himself and Al Gore, another centrist Democrat. Does polling suggest that there is any particular benefit for, Gore, for uh, Biden to go down any of these three roads? I don't think he wants to go for someone in his late seventies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> would be my Biden unsolicited advice to the Biden campaign. Yeah, and I I do think that what it it does make a difference when you're sitting there thinking about it. So suppose, uh, and the way to think about it is how will the Republicans treat it? So suppose he picks Elizabeth Warren. Then on the Republican side, they'd say, see. He's just, he's just a hole, hole till they get socialized medicine and they ruin the economy. So it does make a difference who he picks in the sense of how will they react to it. So safety is probably well, probably the number one concern. There, there are two governors sitting out there who have approval ratings in the 80s, according to some polls, but there's a problem. They're both men. And Joe Biden has said he will put a woman on the ticket. So has Biden put himself in a box here? Well, I certainly would not at this point, uh, unless Andrew Cuomo or someone like that is willing to go through a sex change operation, I would not, I would not change my, I would nominate a woman. Right. Doug? I would say that uh, Cuomo's chances of being the vice presidential nominee uh, are no larger than his chances of being drafted in place of Biden. Okay. Both of which are not going to happen. Both of which are about as high as his starting center for the Chicago Bulls next week or something. All right. James asks, what percent of the voting public is up for grabs? What are the demographics of that group and how is that sorting out at this point? Well, I, let me start on that. I, uh, I uh, with a graduate student, tried to do some work uh, on that. And uh, so if you think about it, there are some independents that, uh, the true independents, which are about 10, 12%, they can swing. And then there are people you can move from uh, deserters in a sense, people who move from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican in a particular election. But uh, I'll turn that over to Doug because we have a huge study from YouGov of 204 to the present, where we're actually gonna be able to answer how many people are, are mobile. Well, at this point, I think it's around 20% to 25%. Yeah, so, so the first thing is 30% of the population is not registered to vote and will not be registered to vote at the time of the election. And, 12. Um, and so there are a lot of people who look like swing voters in that category, but who aren't going to vote. So they aren't really relevant to the discussion. Um, the, uh, if you look at the electorate, so, you know, of the 70%, um, it looks like about 15% of those are plausibly movable uh, during uh, the campaign. Uh, that is, uh, they are not uh, MAGA voters, they're not, uh, uh, never Trumpers, uh, they tend to be less ideological, uh, more conflicted, they're with Trump on some things opposed to him on some others. Um, so 15 sounds like a lot. Uh, if you could move all 15, which is really impossible, you're lucky if you get two thirds of them, which would be a five point swing. Uh, so we're really, it's pretty easy to predict that this election is gonna be one that's somewhere between uh, Democrats uh, plus five or six and Republicans plus two. That's 
about the realistic range in which you could have an outcome. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. And my uh, to up to when I went to up to 25, that was over a period from 72 to the present, and and that in the past. The, Closer you get to 72, the more swing voters. So I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I'll, I will take that 15%. Okay. Bruce writes, what will be the knockout event in the presidential election? The debates, the rate of economic recovery, response to China. In other words, if there's going to be a pivotal moment in the fall election, what do you think it's going to be? China debates, the economy getting better. I think that we will have a pretty good idea of how this election is going to go by Labor Day based on what happens to uh, the, the economy and COVID. If we are back to work and the economy seems headed back to the way it was in January, that will be an amazing win for Trump relative to nothing having happened in between. Uh, on the other hand, if the economy um, is bad and COVID still a problem. Uh, I think all of Trump's weaknesses uh, potentially hurt him more than we would have guessed uh, if none of this had happened. Yeah, I don't see, I, I agree with Doug, it's the, what happens in the economy, which is tied to what happens with uh, COVID-19. And I, I also don't think, I don't look for any big event. There, the big events are really hard to find. Maybe one I would think of was in uh, Reagan's reelection in 84 when he turned to Mondale and said, I'm not gonna hold my opponent's youth and inexperience. That was one, but these guys are both well known. This is a, a very serious election. It wasn't like 84, the economy's doing well. So I think because we know who both people know who Trump is, people know who Biden is, I think we are going to know a lot by that by Labor Day. Yeah, the belief that Trump is going to have a bad debate and say something that's going to kill him is something people have been waiting for for five years. Right. Uh, I think the people who are voting for Trump have made their peace with he's going to be Trump. And so the debates, assuming they happen, will be interesting to watch. but. Um, I don't think they'll have any more impact than they did in 2016, where they didn't. I, I think that there was like for some reporter, uh, Condit, he said the, the trouble was that uh, people uh, took uh, Trump literally, but not uh, some academics and others, journalists took him literally, but not seriously. And the voters didn't take him literally, but they did take him seriously. And I, I think we missed that last time. We did. I think you also will see an interesting spin coming from the Biden campaign before the debate, whereas Democrats would have you believe that Trump cannot walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. Suddenly, he's going to be the greatest debater on the planet in my yes. gosh. Yeah. What can Joe Biden do against this force of nature? Yeah. Uh, we have an interesting question from Justin. Can you discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the census and eventual redistricting? Yeah, so the Constitution requires a census to be conducted every 10 years. Yes. Um, Got 1910. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the initial response rate on the census has been quite poor, and it's not feasible to send uh, census takers uh, around uh, physically during the COVID virus. So we are um, in a unknown territory. But maybe Dave can fill us in on what happened in 1910. 
1910, uh, what happened was that uh, the urban areas were about to take over from uh, rural areas, which made some difference in terms of government policy. And so they held a census up that year until and then they did it in 1920. So there's the one period where you didn't do it, but that, that was a that was a definitely political act. And this one is caused by, as Doug pointed out, COVID and the other thing. And so we are in we aren't we're in unknown territory i i don't know what they'll do i think they're going to have a hard time keeping sending out emails to homes and sending out letters and they're not getting a very good response so i i just don't know i don't i don't know anybody who knows mm -hmm. uh henry asked the following how has pandemic changed issue priorities in 2020 and beyond assuming it has doug i assume it is covid and a series of covid related topics now at the top of the pyramid yeah, so my guess is it will change things the way 9-11 uh, did on terrorism. Um, there's going to be a huge federal response in terms of spending uh, on uh, pandemic response. Uh, that's unavoidable. Uh, other than that, it's you can't quite run against it. I mean, everyone is against it. Uh, so it's... it's the, the political front seems unclear to me. You know, I mean, I think there's some on the left that are hoping that this leads to the belief that government uh, can be is essential and can be shown to be competent and that this is going to lead to wider support for more uh, ambitious government programs. Uh, but, you know, right wing voters and uh, politicians uh, definitely are not signing up for that plan. Mm -hmm. Dave? I, I agree. Uh, I, I agree with that. I, the, the, those two pushes are there and uh, moderates are, are going to be in the middle and the people who decide the election are not out on those wings. If you, if you look at the public opinion data on this so far, I mean, it's people believe what they believed in advance. So uh, people who believed in, uh, you know, healthcare, Medicare for all and so forth view that as uh, a vindication that uh, of that, and those who are opposed to it uh, believe what they did before. It hasn't moved them. No, that's a great point. If you look at the last Biden ad that just came out the other day, uh, he suggests a few things he would have done differently on COVID, and at the end he says extend Obamacare. So he's he's preaching to the base on health care. Yep. Randolph asks, where do you see the Senate going in November? And let me add to that, gentlemen. What Senate races are you looking at? How many, if we talk about 15 to 17 battleground states, give me a ballpark of how many Senate races are worth looking at right now. Uh, there's six Senate races that I believe are uh, worth uh, following at this point. So the ones that are the most likely Democratic pickups uh, are Maine, uh, Susan Collins, Colorado, Cory Gardner's seat. Uh, Arizona, the Martha McSally won a uh, special election. Um, Tillis, Tom Tillis in New Hampshire is a competitive uh, one. The Montana Senate race, uh, uh, Democrats have a good candidate there and a uh, pretty um, uh, red state. Um, Alabama is most People have written that off, that Doug Jones won in a fluke in 2018. Um, uh, there are a few others that will be close in some uh, red states. 
So I, I agree with that. You know, Tom Tillis from North, North Carolina. Uh, so I, I agree with that. Uh, I think it's going to be hard for uh, the Democrats to take it because they have to have a sweep of almost uh, all of them. And I do think uh, Alabama will go Republican, which makes that they have to take four seats. And given just the who's up for election and, and uh, favors Republicans this year. Right. Now, as you look at the Senate races, gentlemen, is Tip O'Neill right or are all politics local or are we going to see nationalized Senate races because of COVID? You're going to be more nationalized, I think. Mm -hmm. Doug? Yeah, it's a long-term trend that these races have gotten nationalized. The, the Senate has been the thing that's kept Democrats from being able to control Trump. Uh, it's enabled Republicans to make you know, large numbers of court appointments. Um, it saved Trump during impeachment. Uh, so uh, I, you're going to see it definitely a nationalized race. Very little is going to be local. Okay. And Mark, even, and if, even if suppose Trump uh, is, looks like he's going to lose, uh, you may remember when Bob Dole ran in uh, 1996, uh, at the end of the campaign, he, he actually spent the last three, four weeks of the campaign saying, hey, keep the Senate Republican right. and, uh, and the House Republican. And I think that will happen on the Republicans this time, too. They're going to say we're going to have this. Uh, so they have they have uh, uh, they have a, an out in the case that it looks like Trump is not going to win and has no coattails. Right. Margaret asked the following question. Which polling methods would you consider the best indicators which are the most misleading. So uh, let's discuss this in terms of approval ratings, right track, wrong track. And also, Doug, a question, why are we so fascinated with national polls when we've seen twice in the last five elections, the national popular vote does not matter? So the last first, uh, <laughs> it would obviously be much better to have polls of every state or at least every competitive state than a national poll. Uh, but those are expensive to do, and the quality of state-level polling tends to be lower than national-level polling. And you um, wouldn't want to do it right now anyway. Yeah, it's, it's too early, but, um, but in, in general, the, uh, it's still, we're a, a nation, and we <laughs> I think we do care about what uh, the majority of the nation thinks, not just the people in states that uh, tend to be close. Um, in terms of things to watch, the big thing is there are um, numbers that bounce around unreliably, particularly in telephone polls, uh, which tend to go up and down and show bigger movements than are really happening. Uh, so uh, for tracking, uh, you, the best thing to watch are uh, online tracking polls. Uh, we do them. There are a variety of other people that do a good job of those. Um, and they been much more accurate in um, not having uh, weird bounces uh, that are a problem at the moment, particularly with, uh, you know, no one knows who's answering their phone or participating in polls at the moment. Um, so uh, the methodology of the poll controlling who's in the sample uh, is uh, much more significant than it is traditionally. Okay, last question, gentlemen, I'm going to put you both on the spot. Since it's 24-7 COVID coverage right now, at some point we need to follow the presidential election. Give me a date on the calendar when people should start looking at polls and will you start paying attention to the race? September 4th, it's my <laughs> birthday. 
<laughs> I'm with Dave on this one. Um, any following the polls at the moment do for your own amusement, uh, but they're at this stage they're not very predictive of what's going to happen, and uh, pe normal people aren't paying attention until after Labor Day. All right, Doug Rivers, uh, Dave Brady, thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Same here, thank you. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, April the 21st at the same time, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Josh Rao, who's a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow, will be here to discuss COVID-19 and the government response. Josh, as I mentioned, is a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Ormond Family Professor of Finance at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He formerly served as the White House where he was the pre Principal Chief Economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and he's taught at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and the Kellogg School of Management. You can join next Tuesday's briefing at the same link you signed on today. You can find more research on the coronavirus uh, at the Hoover Institution website, and our link is www.hoover.org. Just go on there and you'll find an entire section set aside for COVID-19. There's a tab you can click on. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. And that's it for today's broadcast. We sure appreciate you tuning in. On the behalf of my colleagues, Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy. We'll try to do our best on this end to help you stay informed. See you next week. <laughs>